0: Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm
1: Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be exploring propaganda with philosopher Jason Stanley. By the time you hear this episode, the 2020 election will be history. We may not know who won yet, but if that's the case, it will be an issue for the post office and the courts, not the electorate. For the voters, the commercials, the debate, the texts, and the social network battles will be over. The season of peak propaganda will be complete. It would be nice if elections were exercises in reason to debate. For philosopher, this would be like the Olympics. We'd be listening to every detail, parsing logic and evidence, and evaluating all the arguments for fun, for our students, and for our own sense of civic participation. Philosophers love argumentation the way that sports fans adore a well matched rivalry. It gets us all riled up. But this is not how philosophers, or pretty much anyone else, experience it. For most people, the election season is one of overwhelming noise and of desperate frustration. We want truths, we want transparency, we want to matter. But most of all, we want to not be manipulated. Instead, we get obfuscation, insults and appeals to emotion. Politicians spin their records and make promises we know are empty. Frankly, no matter who ends up winning, American elections are kind of depressing. So I'm forced to ask, is there a better way? Could there be an election without propaganda? Could a candidate speak to our reasoning and not our lizard brains? Could democracy even exist without misrepresentations? If self-governance depends on an informed population, is it possible to create a society built on education instead of misleading rhetoric? Notice what I did here. I described propaganda as manipulative and information as education. I suggested that a well-functioning democracy is built on reason and a broken one appeals to emotion. I asserted that political speech helps us understand while propaganda makes us more ignorant. Is all of this true? Are these distinctions so cut and dry? As our guest will explain, they are not. A fundamental problem with political speech is that the audience is a collective. In authoritarian societies, this can be glossed over. The public is supposed to be treated as a single monolithic voice. Everyone is expected to adhere to the same party line. But in a democracy, the people is an aggregate a coalescing of different voices, desires, values, and goals. The very justification for liberal individualism is that people are diverse and that this is a good thing. But candidates can't speak to everyone individually. Glad handing, kissing babies, and going door to door only gets them so far. At some point, they're going to have to speak to everyone at once. Eventually, they're going to have to address the masses. So, what should they do? Should they speak to the highest common denominator? Should they address the most educated, the most informed, and the most reflective? Probably not. As aspirational as we want our elections to be, speaking so narrowly leaves a lot of people behind. But targeting the lowest common denominator diminishes our expectations too far. Yes, candidates need to address the folks without the proper background knowledge and the people who are barely paying attention but they also have a moral obligation to tell these same people that their lack of preparation is unacceptable. As a people, we must strive for more. As individuals, we should not degrade public discourse. As a country, we ought to resist debasing democracy. So political speech has to walk a fine line, speaking to everyone at once, raising our standards while meeting people where they are. This means using metaphors, appealing to intuitions, telling stories, and inspiring emotional responses. Political speech has to be more than just argument, because citizens are not computers or calculators. We are not commander data or Mr. Spock. Expanding our repertoire, however, brings fiction into the equation. An apt metaphor works because it's untrue. A compelling story only connects with the audience when it's a dramatic narrative. Our intuitions speak to us when they are pre-reflective, not after we deconstruct them. The untruths and excesses of the literary are the very thing that address the individuals within the group. They're the tools that allow the audience to personalize the message they hear. The ultimate question of political speech then is, how much fiction is too much? Where is the line between creative oratory and manipulative deception? When are the candidates' voices for hope, and when are they just liars? The philosophical exploration of propaganda begins only once we accept that communicating truth is much more complicated than just asserting facts. On today's episode, we're going to look at the good and bad effects of propaganda, delving into our guests' political and moral theories about its use. But let's not get lost along the way. There will be moments when it seems like propaganda is just a necessary evil, a grand but inevitable compromise in the democratic process. I don't think we should settle on that. In fact, propaganda is a form of creativity. It is as much art as it is craft, and as such, it reveals something essential about the human condition. Propaganda exists because the world does not reveal itself to us as it actually is, only as we interpret it. Aristotle wrote that human beings are the political animal. What he neglected to tell us, however, is that propaganda is the natural result. And now our guest, Jason Stanley, is the Jacob Urosky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. He's the author of numerous books, including How Propaganda Works, published in 2015. Most recently, he published How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Jason, welcome to Why.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to be part of this important discussion.
1: If you'd like to participate, share your moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle for all three is at Radio Show. You can also email us at askwhyund.edu and listen to our previous episodes for free at whyradioshow.org. I guess I just want to start off by asking you if my sense is right. Is propaganda more than just black and white, or is the, the sort of natural discussion that people have about propaganda more accurate, and I'm just being a philosopher and overthinking it?
2: No, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Propaganda only began to have its kind of negative connotation after the depredations of the 20th century, after, for example, World War II, Stalin and Hitler. Uh, You still find in the literature, uh, in literature, for example, written by black Americans, uh, you still find people talking about uh, the necessity of propaganda, for example, abolitionist propaganda. Uh, when people write about uh, how how slavery was addressed by by the social movement that sought to bring an end to it, uh, the civil rights movement uh, Martin Luther King spoke positively about the need for propaganda, so I think that you 're quite right when you say that uh, that democracy is going to uh, well uh, a democracy, as all democracies are, that are flawed and impartial, uh, is going to require social movements to employ propaganda. And of course, those who seek to keep it partial, those who seek to keep democracy imperfect and problematic, also are going to use propaganda to further their ends.
1: People will often refer to books like Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a famous abolitionist novel, as propaganda and therefore less literature. Now, I know that the history of the book is problematic in a different way, but when Harriet Beecher Stowe wanted to inspire people's empathy, was she doing propaganda or is literature and propaganda, historically anyway, a different category?
2: I I think that, uh, that you have to you, you have to consider, uh, you have, I, I would consider it propaganda and literature simultaneously. There is a long debate. It's the central debate of the Harlem Renaissance of uh, whether art is propaganda. Um, so Du Bois, uh, in, uh, in, in a famous essay, argues that uh, black artists, criteria of Negro art, is the essay, argues that black artists uh, need to use their art to further political ends. Uh, in other words, use their art as propaganda to create empathy for the, uh, for the situation of black Americans. Uh, Elaine Locke, uh, a great interlocutor of Du Bois in the 20s and, uh, uh, and editor of The New Negro, uh, in a famous little paper called Art or Propaganda, argued that art sacrifices its greatness when it becomes propaganda. Uh, and he had various objections to art as propaganda. Uh, for example, he said, when you use your art as propaganda, then you're aiming it at the person who's oppressing you and begging for their empathy. But that actually reinforces the logic of oppression and domination. So, But Alain Locke was not denying that uh, that art could be used as propaganda. He was arguing that art when it's used as propaganda is necessarily ineffective.
1: I was struck throughout your book, um, how much you focused on the voices, particularly of, of uh, the descendants of slaves, but also just of the marginalized in general. And I'm wondering, does propaganda look different when you're coming from a position of less power than when you're coming from a position of more power, when you investigate propaganda, do you have to be aware of power relations? Is it inherent in the process or is that just something that you yourself are interested in?
2: I think that, uh, that for most, for political propaganda, uh, power relations are vital, uh, to understand the effectiveness of political propaganda. It's important. And, uh, often necessary, uh, to understand, uh, to understand who has power and what the aim uh, of the message is to reinforce, uh, an already existing power relation to strengthen it. Or in the case of say the civil rights movement, feminism, uh, movements for justice, the gay rights movement, um, the labor movement, uh, uh, you can look at a movie like Norma Rae as propaganda for the labor movement. Um, you, you need to understand that these are attempts to undermine existing structures. And so just to understand why, how propaganda works, as the title of my book is, is, called, is uh, p- power relations are often necessary. And, and, for example, to understand who propaganda works on, I'll give you an example. I was teaching in the Wesleyan prison program when I was writing my book, and I was uh, I had assigned a, pay, a piece of mine called "The War on Thugs" about the 1990s uh, campaign to vilify uh, Black Americans and, and link Black Black Blackness with criminality, which is not just in the 1990s, but the lo- long history of American racism. Uh, but in the 1990s, it was very uh, both parties really participated in it so i was talking about super predator theory and which was this idea by john diulio that black american teenagers were super predators and uh... and especially linked to crime and you had to have uh... and you had to have draconian sentencing policies for them. uh... so i was talking about this with these inca- these incarcerated students and i said Yes, we were all convinced that, and I kept and I kept on saying things like everyone thought, everyone thought, oh, there are these super predators, and the students became furious at me because they said no one in our communities was convinced by this, no one in our communities thought any of this made any sense. It was completely clear to us that it was BS. Now you're coming here and telling us that you, a professor. Uh, in the ni- when you were in the nineteen 19- when you were in the nineteen nineties, thought this was plausible. Like all of us recognize this for what it is. So that's because uh, I wasn't in the targeted community, and because I wasn't in the targeted community, uh, I went along with a kind of uh, so-called experts who were promoting these these uh, these dubious and ungrounded claims. Because John Diulio was a professor at Princeton, <laughs> so uh, so John Diulio, a professor at Princeton, who who was responsible for super predator theory, uh, he uh, he used his academic expertise to promote an absurd theory. No one who uh, was in the affected communities of uh, of Black Americans bought into it, uh, and yet there I was uh, talking as if it was widely accepted. So
1: I, I want to ask a follow-up question to that, and I, I'm going to ask it first as a philosopher, and then I'm going to, um, and then I'm going to explain to everyone what I mean by that. Is, was this lack of belief epistemological, or was it more linguistic? And what I mean by that is, were the, peop- were you, the people you're working with, were people in the target community were they not convinced by this language because they had more knowledge about the alleged uh, super predators, or were they not convinced because the language was out of their norm and so the term just didn't speak to them? It wasn't the right coding, was it? Was it about knowledge or was it about language?
2: Uh, I I think it was about well, they they did not have. Uh, I think that there were multiple sources, and I and I want to. And I didn't fall for super predator theory either, to be honest. Uh, but I think that people who did fall for super predator theory already had a pre-existing ideology linking uh, blackness to criminality. In other words, the people who fell fell for super predator theory already were. Uh, already were inclined to buy into uh, racist uh, ideology. And propaganda... There are several mysteries about propaganda. Um, For for instance, how can it create an ideology? But propaganda's effectiveness in general depends on on taking advantage of already existing ideologies. So what super-predator theory did is it took advantage of an already existing ideology that racist ideology that linked blackness to criminality. And by doing that, by taking advantage of that ideology, the way it took advantage of that ideology, is it created this absurd claim that there were these super predators who were biologically uh, prone to, uh, to rape, murder, kill without feeling or remorse, which is bizarre already, because why would you even want to do those crimes if you had no feelings? Uh, if you wouldn't get pleasure or interest out of them. So it was incoherent from the beginning. But the reason it resonated with, with Bill Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, Bob Dole, the reason it resonated with so many white Americans is because they already had these pre-existing beliefs that made that racist link. And because of that, they when an expert from Princeton University told them this, they uh, they... They didn't. They they were inclined to question it less. But if you're a member of a black community, or if you're a white American, or or person of color who doesn't already buy into this uh, race uh, this racist ideology has no element uh, of of racist ideology, then it's not going to work with you. And that's what was happening with the people I was talking to. They grew up in communities where they knew that the link that that crime was something that was done because of uh, a social breakdown due to over-policing, over-incarceration, lack of jobs. So they didn't have the background ideology. So propaganda is most effective when there's a latent ideology that people have but don't realize they have. And the propaganda can use it, the propagandist can use it, and, and, it's, and even trick themselves into thinking that what they're arguing... Is rational.
1: In a, in a few minutes, we're going to take a break. And at that point, I want to pull that thread because I want to talk specifically about your definition of propaganda. But in, in the process of answering that question, you mentioned this mystery, uh, one of the, the various mysteries of propaganda. And, and you said that one of them is uh, how can it create an ideology? So there is this sense that. Um, if you barrage people with the same message right that the that the the pizza place has a basement and that's where the the the, um, the children are being molested just over and over and over again people are going to believe that what you're suggesting though is is that that process of propaganda creating new beliefs is more mysterious is more ambiguous why what's going on there uh, well pro-
2: propagandas Effective. Propaganda is effective when it can build off already existing beliefs. Uh, I think the, what you're just referring to is the mechanism by which you can create uh, an ideology, a latent connection uh, to begin with that then subsequent propaganda can build off of. But when I talk about when you have like a campaign like the, uh, that, like super predator theory or something like that, uh, much in the news lately, uh, President Trump accused uh, Vice President Biden of using, uh, of using that terminology, which he, which he did not. But certainly he was part of a system that bought into uh, this over-punishment uh, structure uh, of the 1990s. Um, so is what happens when the ideology is already there is that certain claims seem perfectly reasonable, certain claims seem like they're logical and rational, but in fact, they're they're not rational. They're not logical. But the ideology you have masks that fact from you, so they seem rational. Now, there's now how does there's a different way by which you create the ideology in the first the first place, and you've just described it. You connect, say, uh, a targeted group with uh, repeatedly with for example, terrible crimes. You connect immigrants with uh, with gang membership and and rape, and then you create this connection in people's heads uh, over time via repetition, and that's the way that you uh, that you uh, that, that that you must uh, with images and connections between groups and images lay down the ideology from the very beginning. But then the ideology can do. It's work in making apparently rational claims, uh, in making claims that are not rational, uh, seem apparently rational, because you've already forged the link, say, between race and crime in your mind. That's what having the background ideology does for you. If you already connect, say, Jewish people with conspiracies, then somebody telling you that Jewish people... Uh, are out to destabilize the nation or what have you by controlling the media and the press, that's going to seem more rational to you because you already have this background narrative in your head. Um, so even if it's prima facie sort of out to lunch, the story you're being told, uh, if you already have this narrative in your head, it's going to make it seem like, oh yeah, that's common Uh, that makes sense. That's something I've heard before. And that's the key to propaganda, to produce a story that seems intuitive, natural, rational, even though it isn't. And it's intuitiveness, naturalness, and apparent rationality are due to the fact that you have a latent ideology that obscures from you why it is so out to lunch. So
1: when we get back after the break, I want to parse what ideology means in this context. I want to talk about your discussion of demagoguery and about the various different positive and negative uses of this. And we'll start off by looking at your definition of propaganda because I think it's super interesting. But before that, we'll take a break. You're listening to Jason Stanley and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We'll be back right after this.
0: The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. Because there is no ivory tower.
1: You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions in Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Jason Stanley about propaganda, uh, an apt topic uh, at the end of this election season. Uh, I think a lot about growing up. I grew up in a very bad neighborhood in New York City, which I've mentioned on the show before. And I was part and parcel. I I lived amongst the crack epidemic of the 1980s. I was in high school during that time. And... uh, and I heard all of this language that people were using and 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 all of this blame. And as Jason was saying, it didn't necessarily make sense to me at the time. I just knew my daily experience. But now when I talk about that story, when I talk about what it was like to live there, it feels like it's developed a life of its own. I I I think I may have told this story on the show before, and um, but when my wife and I first started dating, and she went back to my neighborhood, she saw a bunch of uh, poor kids playing um, basketball in uh, with a, an old garbage can. And she called me, and she was very upset. And she said, kept thinking, uh, she said, "I keep looking at these little kids and thinking this is how you know young Jack grew up." And, and I said to her, "If when I told you I grew up in the crack distribution center of the East Coast." what did you think I meant? And she sort of laughed, half laughed and Kraft cried and said, I thought you were being ironic, (laughs) right? And I tell that story because it talks about two different things. It talks about the experience of living in a place that people are talking about. But it also talks about telling the story about living in the place. And I worry sometimes that when I tell the story of my life, I make it seem worse or more dramatic than I'm propagandizing my own life. Jason, is that something that I don't know that I should be concerned about? When you tell your story for dramatic purposes, are you in essence creating propaganda about yourself?
2: Well, I don't think that uh, it's wrong to to spread prop, to create a narrative of ourselves. That's what we do. And this gets back to our earlier discussion about the relationship between literature, art, and propaganda. So you're creating a narrative about yourself, but what you don't want, what would be problematic, is if the narrative about yourself reinforced problematic narratives about the world in which you live. Uh, If uh, you know when when people talk about uh, when people talk about their neighborhoods, and they you know all the time. You know we live in a highly segregated city. My children are african american jewish and african american uh, and i 'm married to an african american woman and uh, and they recognize that there are that our city is extremely segregated, and our neighborhood is much more white, and there are much poorer neighborhoods that are uh, black and brown and so they recognize that and when they talk about the city and they talk about uh, the black neighborhood versus the white neighborhood, and start talking about associations, what those things mean. Well, although they're talking about their experiences, they're also reinforcing the kinds of connections that under that underlie racist propaganda. Like I try to tell them, don't call that neighborhood the dangerous neighborhood. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you, do, you know, so those are kinds of stories that we tell because we live in a structurally racist society. Uh, Those are stories that uh, contribute to the, uh, to the problematic ideologies that, uh, that maintain the very things that keep a city of New Haven segregated by race and class in the first place. Um, But so if, when you embed yourself into those stories uh, you can sometimes, then in in uh, a way of dramatizing things reinforce uh these ideologies of america
1: so okay so let me let me let me pull out a little bit and let me ask you you know as as every philosopher is want to do what propaganda is and in your and, and in the book you define political propaganda as the employment of a political ideal against itself, the employment of a political ideal against itself. What does that mean? Why is it important? And how does it depart from the historical analysis of, 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 of what propaganda has thought to have been
2: uh, right. over the last few hundred so years? It's, so so I, I focus on what I call undermining propaganda, the use of a political ideal against itself. Uh, because it seems to me an extremely important kind of propaganda more generally, propaganda is manipulation of the rational will uh, towards towards a goal where what moves you towards the goal is not your reason but uh, emotion uh, but emotion uh, passion something like that um, and this is but a very very important kind of that is this Kind of propaganda that uses a political ideal to undermine that very political ideal. You can see that it's not rational because you know uh, you're being told uh, because the very definition is it tells you you want to strengthen freedom, <laughs> to under but the goal it's bringing you towards is to undermine freedom. So take for instance uh, the extremely well-known Frederick Douglass speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Uh, Douglas draws our attention to the fact that the Founders spoke repeatedly about liberty, and yet these were, uh, by and large, uh, people who enslaved other human beings. So uh, what what were they doing when they were talking about liberty? Uh, The Confederates, uh, the Confederacy, fought a war of independence for states' rights and liberty. But what does liberty mean there? It meant, in the case of the Confederacy, it meant the liberty to enslave others. So how is it that liberty can come to mean its opposite? It can come to mean its opposite when you've adopted some irrational belief about the world. In this case, an irrational belief about the relative worth uh, of uh, black Americans. Um, So it's because people thought that uh, black Americans were not uh, were not worthy or capable of liberty, that they thought they could fight for the liberty to enslave black Americans. So uh, take another example, religious liberty. Uh, religious liberty, uh, which is a fundamental liberty, uh, can be misused. It can be misused to deny, for instance, gay rights, the liberty for people to pursue uh, relationships, uh, with those they love, uh, regardless of gender. So, uh, so uh, you, we we've seen in America people using a fundamental liberty, li, real, real religious liberty, fundamental to a democracy. We have to let people pursue their their religious beliefs. Uh, but um, but people forget, you know, what religious what liberty means is you can pursue your. Your liberty insofar as it doesn't impinge on the liberty of others and they leave that out so uh, religious liberty has come to, is often used to to restrict the liberty of uh, gay and lesbian Americans and so uh, uh, so that's the use of liberty to undermine liberty um, and one can multiply examples uh, one, one can multiply examples here because uh, there's there's so much, uh, there are there's so many cases in which people use an ideal like freedom uh, towards a goal that is, in essence, anti-freedom. Think, for instance, of, uh, of the United Kingdom's Brexit campaign, which uh, pushed for freedom and sovereignty for British citizens by, uh, by preventing them from having all sorts of rights and freedoms to access Europe.
1: I, I actually keep thinking, as you're talking about this, about the argument from the recent election that said, in order to promote democracy and voting, we have to have fewer uh, voting sites and fewer drop-off points for the mail-in elections, right? That that, that the idea yeah. was, uh, we want everyone to vote, so we're going to make it harder to vote. And that only works if you believe this irrational idea that there's voter fraud and that Democrats and in particular uh, black Democrats are more inclined towards voter fraud than anyone else. Right. So those are two false beliefs. And then you use the democratic ideology to justify an anti-democratic activity. So that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Right.
2: Absolutely. And that exact example is one of the main examples I use in my book. Uh, You promote the false belief that there's massive voter fraud. The book is published in 2015. And I I. So I refer to studies showing that in all state local and nat- uh, local state and national elections for some twenty year period there are like a dozen or eighteen or twenty cases of voter fraud among you know hundreds of millions of votes uh, and uh, and so you promote this idea that there's this false belief that there's massive voter fraud and then and then you say what we've got to do is we've got to reduce access to voting via uh, voter IDs via uh reduced uh hours at polling stations um, uh via reduced polling stations uh, in order to protect democracy uh whereas in fact you're undermining democracy so this is this is uh this is that's you know a paradigm example of undermining uh propaganda that we're seeing right now we're we're seeing it with uh we're seeing the president uh claim that we've got to do all of these things that restrict access to the ballot in order to protect the election. That is what is rigging the election. So,
1: so, so I have to ask because the the book comes out in 2015, which means you were probably done with the manuscript. It may be in 2014, which means you were writing it for many years before. And yet, even when I was reading it in 2020, right, you you completely anticipate the rhetoric of the 2016 election you completely anticipate the, the the propaganda of the 2020 election. Is this is this satisfying as an author to see this? Or does it does it make you want your head explode? I mean, to what extent? Because I'm gonna of course have to ask, what do we do about this? But when your analysis is so spot on that you have predicted the future, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel optimistic or does it make you just furious at the world?
2: Well, it, it vindicates the argument of the book, which is that uh, the central problem uh, of democratic political philosophy is the problem, or a, a central and overlooked problem, is the problem of propaganda. Uh, democratic political philosophy in recent years since John Rawls has mostly been about, you know, ta- and, and Robert Nozick, how much taxation versus how much distribution? And the point of my book was to reorient democratic political philosophy to uh, to what I feel is sort of a problem that will always arise with democracy, namely, free speech enables propaganda, and propaganda leads to uh, uh, undermining uh, the very system that enables free speech. So that we see it in every election these patterns, uh, along with debates about how to distribute resources, but we see the centrality of these patterns, vindicates my, my view that, uh, that really the problem of propaganda should have been central and right in our vision all along. And the reason it wasn't was probably because of propaganda itself.
1: In the process, you you make an observation. uh, I actually think it's it's more in passing, um, but I think it's one of the key points, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this, which is you say that authoritarian regimes have ministers and offices of propaganda, but democratic regimes don't and can't Have ministries of propaganda and i think understanding why is essential to understand your argument so can you talk about why a democracy can't have an official office of propaganda and why that's different from other kinds of regimes
2: brilliant and that's a perfect follow-up to the point i just made that the problem of propaganda is masked in a democracy uh because the system of a democracy uh, is inconsistent with with uh, government uh, spreading propaganda. Um, so democracy has as an ideal uh, transparency. Uh, we're supposed to have uh, everything supposed to be transparent in the ideal version of democracy. We see what our government officials are doing. Uh, we can vote for government officials on the basis of our transparent ac- uh, transparent access to their actions. So propaganda isn't consistent with the kind of part participatory role that citizens are supposed to have in a democracy. Now, of course, as you know, scholars from Walter Lippmann on, if not Plato and Rousseau on, have known, uh, democracy, in actual fact, isn't going to work like that. In actual fact, people are too busy to find out what's going on. Even if things were transparent, they uh, wouldn't have the time to read up on it. So. Uh, so when a government wants to do something with the will of the people behind it, it has to engage in various tactics, propaganda tactics. But uh, this can't be done uh, openly via, say, a ministry of propaganda because that would openly violate an ideal of democracy. So, uh, so what happens is you have a system where people, people think they're in the system democracy that doesn't have propaganda. But propaganda is happening all the time. Uh, the government is constantly constructing propaganda, particularly surrounding wartime, or, or to mask when it is doing things for uh, the wealthiest among us. Uh, and citizens uh, are led to believe that that's the kind of thing that only happens in a non-democratic society, uh, in a society that doesn't even try to have democratic ideals. As a result, people, including political philosophers, uh, think propaganda is not an issue in democratic societies, and that's why I think that democratic political philosophy has forgotten the problem of propaganda, despite its centrality in the history of political philosophy. Uh, Authoritarian societies, on the other hand, uh, don't have transparency as an ideal, so uh, so. Uh, they explicitly have propaganda. The problem in authoritarian societies is because citizens, uh, especially authoritarian societies that don't have a, a firm grip on their citizenry, is that many citizens simply don't believe what the government, they assume everything is propaganda. So in democracy, po- people can tend to believe nothing is propaganda, and in authoritarian societies, they can tend to believe everything is propaganda. Uh, Now, so the book here, you see the book was written in 2015 because we're no longer in a moment where citizens believe that nothing is propaganda. Right. (laughs) We've been uh, we can see, you know, uh, when I was writing the book and talking about societies in which people just don't believe anything in the public sphere, uh, then people were reacting to me like, uh, you know, well, what are you talking about? Politicians, if they're caught lying, will be punished. But what uh, what we have now is we have a complete destruction of our information sphere, sort of what ha- like what happens in an authoritarian society uh, without being an authoritarian society. Um, so we don't have the then I go you know I go to places like Canada and speak or Western Europe and uh, and people uh, people don't people don't have a grasp for quite how unhinged things have become in our information space, because they still have a democratic information space.
1: I really like that phrase, how unhinged uh, it has become in our information space. I think that that's a really well-crafted way of describing it. And as you talk about the difference in reactions to the book between 2015 and now, it makes me think also of the charges that we have become more authoritarian and we have become closer to fascism. Your follow-up book, how fascism works, um, clearly involves this sort of discussion. Is it fair, as someone who's, who's recently completed work on fascism, is it fair for us to say that the country has become more fascist? Or do you think that's a misrepresentation? And what's the relationship between the growing awareness and the growing power of propaganda in our information space and the movement towards a more authoritarian, less individualistic, less free society. Right. Good.
2: Uh, so, so here we again, before we begin this discussion, it's going to be very important to, to remember the notion of undermining propaganda. Because when we, when we look at, say, the president's supporters, they would say that they are anti-authoritarian and they're doing everything for liberty. Uh, So, uh, you know, they're not wearing masks because of liberty. Um, But uh, that isn't, that's undermining propaganda. That's not really liberty. The notion of liberty they have is not really liberty. Uh, We can already see, like we can see the militia organizations that during Obama were declaring themselves for for liberty and against the government are now lining up to serve Trump. They're lining up uh, in an authoritarian manner to uh, to to go on the streets. Uh, these the very to protect the government. Uh, these are the very same militia organizations that claim to be anti-government in the first place. So they're acting like authoritarian militias, uh, but yet they're suffused with the language of liberty. Uh, and that it's not liberty. Uh, you can see with say the mask debate. I mean, if. If no one is going to wear masks, uh, if people are, you know, that is going to bring harm to other people. Uh, You you know, liberty is, you know, you have liberty insofar as you don't infringe on the liberty of others. Well, lots of there's lots of infringing on the liberties. There's lots of harming others that's going on in this uh, rather perverse notion of liberty. So. uh, So that's just beginning a beginning point, because everyone's going to claim they're on the side of liberty. (laughs) <laughs> that's just generally true. <laughs> so, uh, so you have to understand undermining propaganda to see why that's, uh, you know, if, if if you're lining up uh, with guns to support the government, then, you know, you should worry about whether you're uh, leaning towards authoritarianism. Um, now, uh, I think it's completely fair to say the country is uh, going on a gradation tour, uh, is becoming more and more fascist. Uh, and, by that, I don't mean the regime is becoming more fascist. So I think, you know, we're at risk of that at some point in the near future, uh, if not under Trump, then under some future leader, uh, as, uh, as this whole episode has shown. Uh, so, uh, so what I mean when I say the country has gotten more fascist is I'm referring to our underlying norms. I mean, fascism is a cult of the leader. Who promises national restoration uh, in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, minorities, and leftist, and and presents himself as the tough guy leader who will deal with all your problems. Lots and lots of Americans want a tough guy leader who doesn't negotiate with anyone, who just solves their problems for for them, who doesn't 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 compromise at all. Lots of Americans are blaming the effects of massive wealth inequality and brutal conditions, uh, brutal employment conditions, uh, and economic and reduced life chances. They're blaming it on immigrants. They're blaming it on minorities. Lots of Americans are paranoid about a supposed leftist takeover at a time when the courts are stacked with far-right judges, when uh, Sinclair Media, a far-right media organization, owns huge portion of local news and Fox News is the most watched news station. So uh, paranoia about the left, uh, blaming your problems on immigrants and minorities, seeking a restoration of past glory. This is an ideology. This is an inclination, a culture that is strengthening in America right now. That doesn't mean we have a fascist regime. Um, But you know, so I think in talking about fascism, we have to be careful about w- what we're attributing the word fascism to. We don't, if you only worry about fascist regimes, you're never going to stop fascism before it becomes a regime. <laughs> so right. it's irrational right. just to worry about fas- fascist regime. Um, in how fascism works, I argue that we have clear how f- clear fascist ideology and politics uh, happening. Um and I think that uh, we have a fascist social and political movement. The rallies, uh, Nazism, uh, Italian fascism were, you know, these giant rallies where the leader creates fear of immigrants and, uh, and foreigners and communists and then presents himself as the strong leader who will protect his people and smash them. I mean, that's clearly the kind of rallies we're seeing. We're seeing the bond between leader and followers. Uh, in Trumpism. Um, and if, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, w- w- the lying is a central part of this whole strategy because uh, at the core of fascism is a friend-enemy distinction. Your leader is leading you against the deadly enemy. Uh, Q- the QAnon conspiracy theory re- that 50% of Trump supporters believe and 33% more uh, are, are sort of neutral about, uh, the QAnon conspiracy theory says that Democrats are pedophiles, uh, so, you know, hiding a pedophilic, um, uh, blood, a pedophilic ring that locks childrens in dungeons to, uh, to siphon off their blood. Um, and so if you think that that's what's going on, then you think that Democrats are incredibly dangerous and even if they say true things, they're just saying true things in order to further their nefarious plot. so you don't mind if your leader lies. The structure of what we're looking at is a fascist structure
1: OK, so now, as I said in the beginning of the show, we're recording this a uh, couple weeks before the election. People are going to listen to this uh, uh, a few days after the election so. One possible outcome of the election, if the results are, are, are finished, is that we have uh, elected uh, the opposition party and we have a new regime to transition. So putting that aside, you're describing a very complex system. You're describing some really horrible things, but you're also talking about the importance of propaganda uh, for marginalized people. So the, the, the greater question I'm going to ask is, is what, you know, what do we do about this? How, how, how do we fix the information space? And the way that I want to ask that first is to ask, how do we counter undermining prop, uh, propaganda to steal a line from the, the National Rifle Association is the only solution to ba- a, a bad guy with propaganda, a good guy with propaganda, right? Can you only fight propaganda with propaganda? How do you fix the information space? And how does propaganda fit into that solution?
2: So these are vital questions. These are the vital questions. Uh, I'm the best at, I'm very good at describing the situation. Uh, I think the, but the most important thing is uh, the answer to the questions you asked. Uh, how does one, how does one undermine the, the, what we're seeing right now with QAnon should terrify every American? I mean, you know um, if you didn't believe, if you didn't realize the power of these narratives, uh, you know th- they spread like diseases, um, they're like viruses, and there's no easy way to undermine them. Uh, it's not clear well, you know h- how do you uh, h- how do you break apart a narrative that's so obviously untethered from reality to those who are not already in it? Um, You know, uh, uh, I think even I am taken by surprise the degree to which QAnon has taken root and spread, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. And interestingly, it's spread, of course, and predictably, in countries with long histories of extreme far right, uh, particularly anti-Semitic far right, because ultimately conspiracy theories always end up being anti-Semitic. Uh, right. The shadowy group that's behind things and controlling things historically has been uh, the Jews. So uh, in Germany, for instance, has created, a, there's now a substantial QAnon movement. Um, so, so that's stalling for time before I re- respond to your question. <laughs> of how to right. <laughs> uh, so uh, so what, do you, what do you, you know, um, what's going to convince people? who think that um, Joe Biden is concealing dungeons filled with children who are having their blood removed from them and sold, um, that they are completely untethered
1: from reality. Um, Well, and I, I, I want to interrupt for just a second because I've never, you know, it never occurred to me, which is sort of embarrassing on my part, but, um, but the description of QNN, as you, the, the the description of the conspiracy theory as you describe is the old anti-Semitic trope, right? I mean, it is the blood, blood libel, and 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 as I said, I'm I, you know, I'm embarrassed that I never saw that before. But you know, because I tell people all the time what you what you say, which is it always it always ends up in anti-Semitism. But but it is so blatantly the blood libel that it's yeah. it's kind of it's both shocking and embarrassing, right, that people still believe it, even if it's in another form. So I just want to interrupt that to make that point, that it is the blood libel to, under, uh, to underlie the point that you made earlier about anti-Semitism. But please continue.
2: QAnon is the protocols of the elders of Zion plus blood libel. So huh. it's that there's a shadowy elite seeking to bring communism, destroy the nation. Uh, there's a heroic figure, Trump, fighting against it. And underlying, and it, and they're not just trying to destroy Christianity and the nation and all that is good and valuable. They also have a nefarious uh, plot. They keep young children. They're trafficking in in uh, in young children, uh, which they're using whose blood they are using for various purposes. So it, it, it <laughs> it's, uh, just, it's, it's, it's it's a protocol <laughs> plus blood libel. It's um, astonishing. And so and and. And and when you and and it, and it isn't astonishing, because the way the mind works is it goes back to familiar narratives. Right. So, it, you know. So that's why QAnon has such a base in Germany among the far right, because of course these anti-Semitic stories have a, a, a base and a history there. So uh, and many Americans have this. So I spoke earlier of latent anti-Semitism, of latent ideology making propaganda effective. Well, the latent ideology that QAnon draws from is anti-Semitic ideology. Um, this doesn't now, of course, there are no doubt many Jewish supporters of QAnon uh, because anti-Semitism is something just like racism is something that uh, you can have if you're Jewish or black. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: it doesn't insulate you, um, but it it seems plausible because of its familiarity. So that's why these old tropes are are hard to eliminate. Um, so what we have to do is we have to look at at how these old tropes in the past uh, were, were reduced, um, because a lot more people believed blood libel, a lot more people believed the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, but what we've seen with QAnon is it's in our society, and always has been in our society, to be exploited and strengthened. Henry Ford gave out 500,000 copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in the 1920s. So we uh, obviously need public denouncements. It's uh, The president is very strongly leaning into QAnon. So uh, if you look at, say, Ivanka Trump's Twitter page, it's just all about how the president is the world's greatest champion against human trafficking. Now, human trafficking is horrific, and it's very laudable, a laudable goal to be a powerful person challenging human trafficking. But the president has not been some kind of hero on that issue. And uh, and why is it such a huge thing on the social media? It's such a huge thing on the social media because they're trying to send the message that uh, human trafficking, that, you know, that, cute cute that uh, there's some huge human trafficking problem connected to the Democrats and the president is fighting against the Democrats and is therefore fighting against human trafficking. So, so I hope that removing a force of disinformation from a role where they have enormous practical authority, the president of the United States has enormous practical authority, when the president of the United States is approving of QAnon and interview after interview in the White House. That strengthens, uh, that strengthens this toxic, historical uh, uh, conspiracy theory. So one way is simply by removing that source of misinformation. Uh, when the president uh, approves of things, as he's been doing repeatedly with QAnon, um, because not condemning it when you're asked to is approving it <laughs> when you're the president of the United States... Uh, then uh, then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse so uh, so if there's a, a change in administration and the new administration comes and is firm about this nonsense and that it is nonsense and condemns it in no uncertain terms, then I hope will 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 go back to a somewhat saner time
1: I, I I think a lot about, and I often talk about it in my class my classes how um, if you look at the data particularly in the african-american community about um approval ratings for gay marriage that the moment that barack obama came out in favor of gay marriage the approval rating jumped up i'm making these numbers up but it was something like from from 30 percent to 70 percent, right i mean it was just yeah, it was just right. overnight and i think that that's the right. kind of thing that you're talking about right that that that, that the leader and this is this is This is what has always been at the heart of of dealing with the Trump presidency is President Trump seems like he doesn't understand that every word he says matters as president. But of course, he absolutely understands that every word matters. Is there anything that we can do on the local level, uh, as, as folks who aren't necessarily in power. I mean, you and I are professors and I have a radio show, and so we have more voices than, than, than some people. But what can the ordinary person do to counter the undermining propaganda uh, and to sort of restore some sort of reasonableness uh, to our political discourse and to the information space?
2: Well, I think uh, we need principled conservatives who speak uh, and deno- speak to and denounce this nonsense. Um, you know the uh, Trumpism has captured uh, the Republican Party and has transformed it into a kind of cult of the leader uh, but we need principled conservatives. I'm not myself conservative but I recognize that democracy requires conservatives. It requires social conservatives, it requires libertarians, it requires socialists. it requires uh, centrists of both of uh, center right and center left. It requires uh, a whole bunch of different views because the problems we face as a society don 't all have a uniform solution. Uh, you know uh, you might think health care should be run by the government uh, and and separated from private profit, and you might think that cars should be. Part of private profit, uh, you know, or computers should be sold in terms of uh, a more straightforward capitalist model. So we have these multiple problems, um, and they require different solutions. So you need a, a difference of political opinion and compromise and argument. But what we have now is we have the conservative movement captured by a sort of authoritarian cult of leader mindset, and. Uh, Ultimately, what we're going to need is we're going to need conservatives standing up to this and saying, uh, no, uh, actually, uh, the left do not control the media. Uh, uh, there's huge swaths of the media are controlled by the far right. Uh, the New York Times is not all that leftist. It's just basically a bunch of centrists. Um, we need conservatives restoring rationality because in the current moment, which I don't pin on Donald Trump, I pin the blame mainly on Newt Gingrich for this turn, the Republican Party has demonized the Democratic Party and treated them like they're not a legitimate opposition. So uh, until we have conservatives speaking up about how extreme things have gotten and challenging it, then uh, I don't think there will be much hope because I think part of the ideology here is, you know, I mean, I am, you know, a Democratic Socialist, so a lot of people are going to look at me and say, well, he's just a leftist, why should I listen to him? Um, and so until we have conservatives restoring some kind, and conservatives saying, frankly, the kind of thing that I say about conservatives, I think, you know, um, I've got plenty of conservative relatives and, uh, you know, Orthodox Jewish, in the Orthodox Jewish community in Midwood, and, uh, and they, uh, you know, and they have every right to live their lives. And so I, I hope that we will, again, have principled conservatives who say, look, no, people who disagree with us aren't monsters. Uh, They have a different set of values. A democracy is, they're not going to threaten our values. They can have their values and we can have our values. And people growing up can choose what values uh, they want uh, to live by. Uh, But until we have conservatives uh, who don't want to dominate our society, uh, until we get this paranoia out, Uh, This paranoia that uh, leftists want to seize control, which is the underlying underlying protocols of Elders of Zion message that leftists are seeking to destroy religion and create communism and force everyone into re-education camps. That's what motivates a far-right push. So until we have conservatives who are like, calm down, (laughs) actually conservatives run a lot of the country, I don't think we're going to get... Much improvement of our information space, and and just as a, as a
1: way outside of the, the conversation, I will I will tell our audience that the second book that I refer to, "How Fascism Works," the subtitle of of it is "The Politics of Us and Them," and that's very much what you are talking about. That that yeah. that we need. Uh, Both sides of the equation to undermine that us and them and to say, no, we can live together with different values. We can. This is what a diverse and pluralistic society is with Jason. This has been a fascinating and tremendously relevant conversation. And I hope that we can do this again so we can talk about your other work, because it's super fascinating. And I hope that it will be at a time when there is less urgency and less public anxiety. But thank you (laughs) so much for joining us on Why. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. It's been an important conversation. And thank you for doing the work you're doing, which is vital for a democracy.
1: I appreciate it very much. You have been listening to Jason Stanley and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions of Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this.
0: Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org.
1: You're back with Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We were talking with Jason Stanley about propaganda. The way Jason wants us to think about propaganda is in terms of the ideology undermining itself. We want people to vote, so we're going to make it harder. We want people to be free, so we don't let them do certain things. We want to treat everyone equally, so let's blame a scapegoat. All three examples of this are instances of doublespeak, of claiming we want one goal and using the opposite goal to achieve it. Now, that seems crazy when you put it out there, but of course, so much propaganda is about that. So much propaganda is about undermining our purposes. The first goal is to identify when we do that and to try to stop it. But there's another aspect of it that Jason brought up that's super interesting, and that's the idea that propaganda doesn't work unless the ideology is already latent in the culture. We wouldn't believe racist things if there wasn't racism to inspire us to believe it. We wouldn't accept anti-Semitic tropes if there wasn't already anti-Semitism in the culture. What propaganda tells us when we study it is more about ourselves than propaganda. We're looking in a mirror. We're exploring our vulnerabilities. We are identifying our blind spots. If we believe propaganda, it's because we have shortcomings. Yes, you can look at propaganda and you can look at the methods and you can look at the techniques and you can look at the words. You can identify dog whistles and you can find procedures that people have used to manipulate groups and individuals for hundreds, if not thousands of years. There is a reason to study propaganda just to learn the techniques. But there is every reason to study propaganda to make ourselves better and to make our cultures better. No matter how many times they tell us, they're not going to, be able to convince us that we have four eyes. No matter how many times they tell us, they're not going to convince us that we have five legs. But the fact that they convince us that immigrants are evil, that some group is here to undermine us, that you can think of every ethnicity and race as identical to one another. That means that we're already thinking something like that in our heart and that it permeates our culture. We are in a period of tremendous conflict and great change. We're at a turning point, regardless of who won the election. We can continue in the path we're going, and use propaganda to promote hate and division. Or we can stop and we can use our philosophy to reflect on the message we communicate and the assumptions about who our neighbors are. Jason has put that on the table. It's up to us to act on it. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you.
0: Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Lua E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash Mark Weinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower.